looking to expand your awareness and cultural proficiency in the areas of racial justice and intersectionality? The Antietam Professional Development Initiative invites you to Black Sweat, a 40-session professional development series facilitated entirely by Black sexuality educators, counselors, therapists, and other practitioners. Black Sweat is inspired by the song from the late great Prince and invites participants to witness the best in both emergent and seasoned Black thought leadership. In fact, this Sunday, May 30th, you can join me at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for my workshop on how to assist clients and students in moving through race as a barrier to sexual empowerment. Each session is one hour long and offers one ASEC certified credit. Tickets for Black Sweat range between $25 and $50 per session and can be purchased at www.antiappd.com slash black sweat. For more information, hit that link or feel free to email the show at mailbox at tsobpodcast.com. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome to TSOB with Dr. G, a podcast featuring intellectual table talk about race and sexuality. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert, a sexuality educator, writer, and researcher. Join me as I talk with the most brilliant minds in human sexuality, applying a professional Black lens to discussions about sexiness, health, and healing in the new millennium. It's TSOB, the sex ed of Black folk. Let's get to the get down, shall we? Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another episode of TSOB with me, Dr. G. I am so excited. Y'all already know I'm so excited to be here with you with another episode. Um, We have an amazing guest. But of course, I always have amazing guests, but this person is no exception. This is not only my colleague in this work, but my friend, my my sibling. I just, I have so many things to say about them and I'm gonna give them their flowers in just a minute, but I'm gonna go ahead first off and read their bio. So I'm talking about no one else, but Bianca Loriano. So, and I know a lot of y'all already know who Bianca is, so go ahead and recognize and get ready to pay your homage as well. Bianca Loriano is an award-winning educator, curriculum writer, and sexologist. She is a foundress of the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, the Latinegrixes Project, and hosts latinosexuality.com. She has written several curricula that focus on communities of color, including What's the Real Deal About Love and Solidarity and the Communication Mixtape, Speak On It, Volume 1. She also wrote the Sexual and Reproductive Justice Discussion Guide for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, published in 2018. Bianca has been on the board of CLAGS, the LGBTQ Center at CUNY, the Black Girl Project, and Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Bianca is now, take, took her talents on her own and started Anti Up, 
which is a professional development consortium that features workshops, uh, all types of amazing things for people who claim to be serious and want to invest their resources in getting better at teaching through a social justice lens. But on top of that, Bianca has also elevated her platform to talk more about disability justice. And so uh, one of the main things she's done recently is has been the lead educator for the Netflix film Crip Camp and led efforts to create a curriculum rooted in disability justice practice, self-determination, and social emotional learning competencies that are aligned to the Common Core state standards. If all of that wasn't dope as hell, she also in 2020 really got her flowers and earned an honorary PhD for her work in justice, equity, and inclusion in the U.S. sexuality field. And so now y'all know, well, you should already knew, but now you really know why I have her on the show. And so with that, I just want to say thank you for being here, Bianca, and welcome to TSOB. Thank you, Tracy. You know, I love you. And people don't know, but like Tracy drove me to New Orleans when I needed another place to <laughs> grieve after my mama's death. So, you know, Tracy hauled all my stuff. That, <laughs> and my that, stuff was, a, that was an adventure. I loved it. Yes. I loved it. I, I, and you know what? Blame my mama for be, for being a road tripper when I was younger. I love driving. Um, but mm-hmm. I, while you are talking about me, I just want to take the time and just really thank you. Um, I... I don't even remember when I first met you or came across you or whatever, but I will say the one thing I knew from out the gate was like, Bianca Loriano was no one to fuck with, like no one to play with. And that for me was so important. And and I'm going to get a little, I'm not going to cry, but I I do want to get a little sensitive and personal because um, I've always been one of those people who, you know, as a dark skinned, fat black femme, there was always, growing up in the Midwest as well, there was always um, this self-censoring that I had to do to kind of make it through the world, right? This this understanding of, you know, you're automatically perceived as too much, you're automatically perceived as too loud, you're automatically seen perceived as too aggressive. And so in many ways, I had really learned how to mute myself and bring myself down to not be too offensive to people, to maybe get in spaces and have a little bit of things. So when I first came across you, the one thing I was just, first off, I was like, oh shit, I'm not ready like whoo wow Bianca's a lot but as I got to know you I was just so grateful because you were my possibility model of who I could be um you know like really recognizing that I had justifiable anger I had justifiable emotions and I had every right to be as loud and vocal and to speak up and to call things things and so I just want to give you your flowers for that because you've been like, I don't have many mentors in this field, um, but I definitely consider you one of my mentors and for that. And just for like, think like you and maybe a couple of other folks are just folks where I'm like, this is a person I can go to if I need help thinking through something who can offer me new ideas. And so I just want to mm-hmm. go on record as saying that I love you and appreciate you for that because um, you, you are also one of the realest folks. Like I can count on you to keep it 100 with me at all times. And I can't say that for everybody else in this field. Not there are others, but I can't say that for everyone in this field. So I just want to honor you for that. Definitely. And I love you and I receive that love. (laughs) And, you know, reflected back to you because I definitely, it's a reciprocal relationship that I definitely have with you, Tracy. And I too can't remember when our paths crossed, but I know it was a transformative moment for both of us. And, you know, one of the things I also love about our relationship is how we both, um, we value accountability. Yes. (laughs) We value, like, this was wrong hurtful or like let's can we reflect on this a little bit more can we 
out or be clear. Like we really come at each other from a space of understanding yes. and not wanting to be right. Yes. And that to me is an important part of a friendship and also a collaboration and the communities that I want to be a part of. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and yeah, it's been hard. <laughs> it was really hard. And also, you know, it was through our friendship that I became more fully present um, in doing this work in a That's more beautiful. radical way where I was able to be like, okay, I got to unlearn all the white supremacist bullshit that I've been told and socialized to believe and all that, li- all those lies. Um, and also for many light-skinned people, it takes us a minute, sometimes longer, um, to really get to a place where we're like, oh, um, I can use this yes. <laughs> in service to black liberation. Yes. And yes. And be strategic about it. And that definitely has always been something that I've admired of you pushing me and challenging me and asking me to do things differently because there is a power that comes with being lighter skin, even though, yes, I am fat, I am tall, I'm, you know, all these other things, but I also have all these other things that people want in our field that people value and how can I use that strategically um, to create change? And that's really been at the heart of a lot of the work that I want to do for us. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'm also ready to pass the torch. So. <laughs> yes. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into all that in just a minute. Before we really get into our conversation, though, I have to ask you the question I ask all my guests, my starter question. So where are you from? Where are your people from? And what's got you thinking about sexuality these days? Yeah. So I grew up in Maryland and at the time it was considered Silver Spring. And if you're from that area, that's not what it was. That's not what it is today. Mm. It's called something different. It's called Glenmont. Mm -hmm. Um, But very suburban. My parents um, migrated from Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. uh, to Washington, D.C. for my father to get a full grant to for a Masters of Fine Arts program at American University. And that was, you know, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was being required to be implemented at universities. Mm. And a lot of universities went to Puerto Rico because they were like, oh, they're not white like us. They're different enough. Mm. It'll meet the quota. And so a lot of Puerto Ricans were recruited from the island um, to the U.S. uh, to go to college to meet those quotas of inclusion or diversity. Um, So... Everybody else was back on the island. And so we grew up, you know, like nine months out of the year in the United States. And then like many parents of color, they sent us down south, back to Puerto Rico for the summer. And so we were able to be with family members until I was about 16. Um, At which point they were like, get your own plane ticket if you want to keep coming to Puerto Rico. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So that's where I'm from. I'm currently living in Oakland, California. And um, I never imagined living in California before. And I met my partner. And I was one of those like late bloomers when it comes to love. I mean, I definitely have felt love for partners, but it wasn't until, um, you know, my mom died and I was just reeling into a spiral and also really honest about what I needed and what I didn't need. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I really fully believe that my ancestors came together and were like, this person is ready for you Ooh. and can show up for you. And um, so this is like a new, it's like that grown up love that James Baldwin talks about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah. It's that war, it's that battle, it's the grown up. Um, so when I met G and G grew up here in the Bay Area, um, I was like, 
where else am I going to go? You know, my entire matrilineal line is not in Puerto Rico anymore since the hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I don't really have a home <laughs> necessarily. It's wherever I'm going to make it. Yeah. So I'm currently in West Oakland, California. And this is my third year here. Um, I spent two years in New Orleans when you drove me down yes. from spending 17 years in New York City. So I've been a lot on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then what got me into sex, um, a lot of things. I mean, you know, I grew up, I was born in 78. And Zinios in the house. Mom. I know, right? <laughs> Millennials. I think I'm still a yes. I don't know what I am. I forget what they call us, but I'm on that cusp. Yep, that's why I said the Zennials. That's the, that cusp part. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my parents were big hippies. And so I grew up with books like The Joy of Sex, Our Bodies, Ourselves, mm. um, around just for me to like look through. And, um, you know, we had that access to information but also we didn't have the talk though with information from my parents Mm -hmm. so my parents were also just didn't have the kind of uh education that they could transmit to me and my sister and so i grew up at a time where terms like machismo were really popular where people were assuming all latinos were mexican Mm -hmm. where people were assuming that all like latino was this new racial category which just is not true right um and and I, too, had a very different upbringing in my family where my family knew I was too black and they tried to make me less black by pulling me out of the sun and straightening my hair, cutting it all off and and giving me messages about how I look dirty and, mm. you know, things like this throughout my lifetime, all because they were like, we don't want a black person in the family. Mm. And I said, well, you already have several right if I'm what pops out right <laughs> and I don't look like anybody else right. um so a lot of that like anti-blackness a lot of the the xenophobia that showed up when I was growing up in the 90s mm. and a lot of like the racial ambiguity that was a part of look 90s hip-hop where you know all the light-skinned girls with hair like mine were the, the love interest in all the music videos mm-hmm. so it was a really weird experience for me where I had power in my body and didn't understand it misused it um and i'm still you know trying to figure out like what's the best way forward with that power that i still have and you know how to take care of of 16 year old bianca that didn't know what so um so it's a lot of i think healing work as well um but also it was always present it was ever present and just never discussed and so i felt through and through but i just didn't have the language or the access in many ways um that young people have today. Yeah. So yeah. It's kept me. Revealed. Yeah. And I, I, and I love that you bring up this story because, um, one of the things that was initially just part of why I was like, I need to learn more about you was because you were always really big on bringing, um, like the Afro Latina, like the Afro Latinx identity to the fore, which for me was just new because of the, you know, growing up where I grew up, there was so much segregation that very little, um, interactions happen between black folks and Latinx folks that wasn't related to violence or pitting us against each other and a bunch of other bull. And so, um, not to make you go into any lectures or anything, but for the folks, especially the black folks who are like, I, like, tell me more. Can you share a little bit more kind of how, what race looks like in, in Latin American countries kind of, and, and, you know, some of the dynamics that go on and in terms of mm-hmm. those differences between white Latinx folks and black Latinx folks, et cetera. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. You know, it looks a lot like, um, white supremacy, <laughs> just in Spanish. 
or Portuguese, right? right. Um, there's this really beautiful um, archive called slaveryvoyages.org that offers a time lapse of um, how kidnapped Africans were removed from their homelands and brought over to the West. Mm-hmm. And when people watch that, one of the main things that I have people do is notice where those ports are, where they stop. It's primarily in the Caribbean and in South America. And so this is why we have Brazil being, you know, the place where we have the most black people in the Western hemisphere mm-hmm. because of all of the chattel slavery that occurred. And, you know, when people start to see, oh, there was just a couple of boats that stopped in the U.S. in comparison to all these other ones, mm-hmm. um, here is where we start to understand that the kidnapping, the forced enslavement, the rape um, of our ancestors happened throughout this continent. Right. And, um, you know, people are trying to erase that because it makes them comfortable. It brings them closer to white supremacy. And a lot of us don't have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe my parents had the privilege of um, having their parents try to wean out that uh, blackness from the, the line. Um, but then I popped out, right? So here is right. another conversation around how our genetic, like genetics don't give a fuck. Right. Like, let's just, like, <laughs> <laughs> genetics do not care about your politics at all. No, they're like, we're here. What's happening? Um, and so I think, you know, I, I find a lot of compassion for my parents at times mm-hmm. and at times I don't because they weren't prepared to raise a child, let alone a child that didn't look like them, whose body was different from theirs, who was challenging a lot of what they were trying to figure out along the way. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm in a really interesting position where my parents don't identify as black. Mm-hmm. They, um, when people see pictures of them, they're like, oh yeah, they look like a, you know, a young- They look like Negroes to me. Right. <laughs> right. Like, but they had never claimed that identity yeah. and they still don't. And um, so so I was literally and figuratively the black sheep in my family, which is not saying a lot because I'm very light. Um, but also it was, or it remains, a space where I think a lot more work is being done. Um, so when I started like the Latin Negros project, it was hard. Like we only saw like one or two people of color mm-hmm. in the media, let alone black Latinos. Right. And so today there's a lot more nuance with people talking about Afro-Latino or Black Latino and what those two terms mean and how they're different. So my understanding today by the young people who are guiding that conversation um, is when we say Black Latino, people usually have a Black parent who is not from Central or South America Mm -hmm. or for the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, and then have a parent who is. So that parent who's Latino can be any racial group. Um, And then there's people like myself who use the term Afro-Latino and, you know, Black Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. interchangeably because I'm trying to still figure that out for myself. Um, But the way that we currently hear people use Afro-Latino is primarily people who have black Latino parents Mm -hmm. who are from Central South America, Spanish speaking Caribbean, who are racially black um, and also have that cultural element as part of their blackness that folds into their experiences. And so um, the white supremacy looks the same. It is what has divided us. It is what has offered us an opportunity to dehumanize each other again and again mm-hmm. and i'm just not committed to that yeah, yeah, yeah. labor and i'm in service to that dehumanization yeah. so um so a lot of the conversations that are happening right now i believe they don't necessarily invite my experience into the conversation which i'm fine with because other people need to be talked about you know it's not always about me mm-hmm. or my experience and as a leo i say that with pride <laughs> you know like it's not yeah and it's a very complicated situation to be in because we're also talking about 
my parents' experiences right. and this the historical trauma of white supremacy and erasure of blackness yeah. being something that was fed to me every day consistently and constantly and so it's a every it's a it's a everyday decision yeah. to violate that and challenge my upbringing yeah. so yeah i love that it's a little bit of yeah. No, I, I love it. And I always it's it's funny because, um, you know, this is slowly getting into the conversation around colorism. And, and um, I think about it because, you know, I'm always intrigued by light skinned folks, like the, the nebulousness of their identities and, you know, what are you and all that stuff? Because that's not something I've ever mm-hmm. I would even say I would never. I've never even had, I've said before, I've never even had the quote unquote privilege to have someone ask me, what are, what are you? It's always assumed. Oh, well, you just this. It's like, well, damn, I could have been from Jamaica. I could have been from the Dominican Republic. I could have been all that. Y'all and everybody's like, no, you just Negro. And it's like, Mm -hmm. but, but there's layers to it. And there's all these different things that just to me are really fascinating. And so um, I Mm -hmm. appreciate you sharing all of that because it's still, it, there's also part of me that's like, well, shit, I ain't got to figure it all out. There's also the privilege of not having to do any of these questions. So I just let let folks have their moments. Um, but then I also think politically, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar. Are you familiar with Desus and Miro? Those are my folks. I love them so much. <laughs> so I think yeah. about Miro, um, who's Dominican, who often talks about like, he's black. And, and the thing that I loved was like, he was like, when the cops get here, they not asking me if I'm from Dominican Republic or if I'm from here or from there. They're like, you black. They calling me the N-word just like everybody else. And so I think about that too. But I'm also one of those people that's like, if you are not, for lack of a better term, visibly black, I, it's not, I just don't feel like it's my place to tell you what you need to claim. Even though for me, I'm like, all oh, y'all black to me. But it's if you decide you want to claim it or you don't, that's on you. <laughs> you know? Um, and if you do right. claim it, shouts out. So. Exactly. And, you know, and I think it takes, it's a, you know, it takes a lot to come to that decision of like, I'm going to betray my heritage and my upbringing and challenge that and violate it and be, and essentially become a race traitor. Mm. That's really what it is. Mm. You know, we use that term for racially white people who refuse to be in service to white supremacy. But it, it also applies to people who are Latino because Latino is not a racial group. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. be of any racial group. Yeah, um, yeah. Any so, you know, it's also the complicated ways that, that the United States creates, creates a racial hierarchy, Fetch. which is trash. Right. Which is a whole um, other episode, but, but it's an important absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So then Bianca, tell folks, um, because I know at this point there may be some, a little, you know, we're going we're gonna to hold space for them. I'm going to say clueless, but I don't mean it with shade. I don't mean to be mean. But there are a few folks who are probably listening who are probably like, what the hell does any of this have to do with sex ed? So tell them, like, what does any of this have to do with sexuality, sex ed? So, so share from your perspective what you feel like, how you feel like this all relates to sex ed and, and even what happens in the classroom when folks are trying to learn basic things like contraceptives or, you know, relationships or sexual orientation, et cetera, and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, colorism is the homie of white supremacy. Like they hang out. Actual they, facts. They got together. They have, they have drinks. Um, and so, you know, when I walk into a classroom, the students read my body. They racialize me. They see how I'm presenting my gender, my expression, the way I adorn and decor my body. And so I'm literally being consumed by the people in the classroom. And so I'm not just talking about young people because they do that, of course, Mm -hmm. but I'm also talking about adults (laughs) do that too. And so it is, um, 
the way that we have been socialized to try to place people into certain categories so that we can figure out how to treat them essentially. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, what that has looked like is, um, is really interesting because even if I didn't, there was a while where in my teens, I didn't claim blackness because I didn't know that it was something that I could claim Mm -hmm. until I started to realize I'm being treated just like my other homies here. And, Oh, you know, here's the lie because it was white people who helped me understand, oh, you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. You are not here. We don't like, we need to listen to you. I get to interrupt you. I get to make you feel unsafe. Um, these are all the things that I have that you don't. Right. And I'm going to flex them as often as I can in the classroom or elsewhere. And so that really showed up for me. And it still does again and again and again. And as a young person, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't have the language for mm-hmm. it. Even though I had lighter skinned black people in my life, I had biracial black people in my life, I had a white parent and a black parent, and they weren't talking about it either, right? So this, so we're in a different time, I think, for a lot of people to have these larger conversations. Yeah. You know, we were still talking about passing and what passing meant for some people in our families and in our communities. And and today we have a more nuanced understanding of what that looks like and how it was enacted and and the live reality of it. But also what showed up specifically for me, as I mentioned earlier, is this idea of lighter skin and a certain aesthetic, which I inherently embody because of my genetics, Mm -hmm. was exalted in my community. And I was, I'm definitely a child of 90s hip hop. You know, I I dressed like TLC and salt and pepper and, you know, all like that was a part of my whole life. And, um, you know, that really played a role in affirming one my identity and my experiences to see myself represented. It was powerful to see that representation, but it also wasn't power right. that I got. Right. right? I didn't understand what to do with that. Um, and so, what that means is, you know, when I was fifteen, sixteen, I had a lot of older men in their thirties and forties hitting on me, mm-hmm. um, inviting me to dinner or buying me something after school, buying me sneakers. Like these were things that I was offered to be a companion to adult men, right? And so I think it's important to say that out loud because, you know, 16-year-old, 15-year-old Bianca didn't see it as a problem. Um, She didn't see it as something that would harm her. And I want to honor that uh, audacity Mm -hmm. and that sense of security and safety um, or sense of self. But also today, you know, I want to hold the reality that it was an incredibly violent, yeah. traumatic experience yeah. to be hypersexualized, to be seen as, you know, listen, I was 5'10 by the time I was 15, mm-hmm. you know, so to be in a size 14, you know, so it, it <laughs> I was adultified yeah. as, you know, Same. they yeah, allow yeah, yeah. you to. Yeah. And, um, and that is at the heart of a lot of the loss of freedom, of being a child, yeah. of being curious, um, the loss of safety, the, the, the lack of trusted adults who cared about me, yeah. um, and how they showed up in my life. Yeah. And because of that, you know, to this day, I'm still shocked that like, I didn't experience a teen pregnancy. And I, mm. you know, I believe that was my ancestors being like, no, enough, enough of us have, right. You are not the one that needs to have that experience right now um because i made a lot of bad choices tracy (laughs) i made a whole like (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) so we talk about colorism it's so important to like the existence of so many of us yeah because 
it's crafted who we're told we can become and where we're told we belong. And um, for many lighter skinned people, that has often been the argument, oh, I'm not black enough. And well, I get harmed too. Okay, girl. And your commentary isn't what's needed right now. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And what's needed now is a strategic use of that power that you have, which you know you have, which you're just sitting on. Right. Um, That to me is not, that's not who I want to be. And so when it comes like that kind of accountability, you know, I remember, um, you know, the five years when my mom died, like two weeks, literally a week later, we were at a, at a, a cabin in the woods oh, somewhere yeah. in Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, I just released the real deal about love and solidarity curriculum and, and it came with a video and we watched that video. We did some activities and afterwards you were like, Bianca, we got to talk about colorism. And I remember being like so numb <laughs> just with, with, with grief, yeah. but also being like, Chase is my homie. I could do it. We can have this conversation. Of course she's right. You yeah. know? Yes. That's, we needed a content warning. I clearly wasn't, you know, thinking about this yeah. in this moment. And, you know, it really was an important experience, not just for me to have, but also for our relationship. Yeah. I think for me to really say, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> to not reject what you had to share, yeah. but to also be held accountable. And, you know, that was the start of us being like, we could totally do. Yes. Um, <laughs> we could do something together. Yes. Something. So, you know, we got to break that down, though, for folks. Because they're like, wait, a cabin in the woods? What happened? Like, what? What was going on? Yeah. <laughs> There's so many layers to what you brought up. The first thing that popped up in my head is the colorist codification of of fetishization that goes on of black femmes because I was thinking of you how you told your story and I was thinking like there's very few especially not cis black femmes that I know of who haven't at some point been approached by an older mostly masculine presenting person for sexual something in the course of their prepubescent pubescent adolescent years and the story I tell is you know I was 12 years old But it's so ironic to me because never once was I ever approached for something akin to a relationship. Mm -hmm. It was always what what that thing do, what that mouth do. Can I do this? Can it's always some type of uh, flippant sexual favor. And I'm like, it's amazing to me that even in the objectification, there's still an expectation of what you get access to. Um, I told the story and and, and I want to be clear. I've never been someone who was raised to hate her skin color. Like I never saw my own skin color as bad. I was just very clear that I wasn't the chosen one and that was just what it was. But I think as a result of that, a lot of experiences I had just got suppressed back in my memory. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, a a person I went to high school with, lighter skin, um, masculine person passed away from COVID. And once that announcement came out on Facebook, I was triggered by the memory of him soliciting me for sex in high school, even though he had a a huge crush on my lighter skin best friend. And Mm -hmm. when I asked, well, why didn't you ask her for sex? Why you hit me up? Ask her for sex. His response was, well, I can't do that. She's an angel. And it was this clear expectation of what I was supposed to be doing and what I had the capacity to do versus her. And so it's just, that is just something that's sitting with me. But then, so, so then to fast forward to that cabin in the woods where you're showing this video, which I mean, that video I I, I had to do, I had to do some purging, right y'all. So basically it's this video, you know, and it was, you know, youth developed. So 
bless that baby's heart who decided this is the video they wanted told, but it, it just has a really negative portrayal of dark skinned black people. It was one of those things where it was like, wow, I didn't even know that I'm sitting with this. I did not know that this would affect me in this way because that's just not my lens. That's just not how I intentionally go about the world looking for colorism. But here it is right in my face that this skin color means you have access to this and it actually hurts you more than you realize. So I think that struck me, but then to be able to bring it up and to say, yeah, this was violence. And, and, and I will say that we did that in front of a bunch of other white people. Whew, that was intense <laughs> on multiple levels, but mm -hmm. sometimes that's the work, right? And I think this is a great way to t get into the discussion of accountability, but sometimes that's what it is. There is no perfect place to be able to acknowledge like, yeah, this thing happened and there's something to be checked about in this moment. And, you know, sometimes we, there is no fancy, well, let's go and have this space where, you know, we can say, so sometimes you got to just get called out and you got to deal with it in that moment. And I think that's one of the things I appreciated about you that you were like, let's do it. And, you know, we were able to go there um, because I think a lot of people aren't ready for that um, at all. Um, and I want to, so we're going to get to accountability, but I do want to get to my regular interview questions. So I want to ask you, what do you feel like, because I have a few that in my own head, but I want to hear your answers. What do you feel like is your sex ed superpower? Mm, a sex ed superpower. I think, so there's a couple of things. Um, I think I take a lot of pride in taking complicated ideas and making them more accessible with language that people can understand. Yes. Um, and I say that as someone who went through a PhD program and a master's program and all this other stuff. And, you know, I was pushed out of my first PhD program because I was told my language was too accessible, that I needed to talk to the community of scholars that I was trying to be a part of. What the fuck is and, um, <laughs> and I was just like, whatever. Like, what are you talking about? Right. But um, so language, language access has always been important to me. Um, and I strive really hard to to keep the work that I do at a particular reading level so that it is accessible to all parents, all people. Because listen, we live in a country that has like, what, 70% literacy rate, which mm -hmm. is ridiculous for such a quote unquote first world country. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's one of my superpowers. I really also believe that, um, you know, not being afraid of conflict is really- That was the one I was gonna pick for you. <laughs> Bianca gonna get some shit popping if nobody else will. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I think, you know, the not being afraid of conflict, that fucks people, that fucks white people it up, does. especially. Yeah. Because they really, they really think, first of all, they can come for me and that I'm going to allow it right. in a way that they think they can. But also that um, they expect an apology almost sometimes from me. And I'm not apologizing for a goddamn thing, especially to no white people, yeah. when I know that there's no reason to apologize. Yes. And so instead what I do is I, you know, I thank people for their generosity and for, you know, caring for me and our community in such a powerful way that they voiced this mm -hmm. and um, and remind them that this is a part of what it means to be a messy human being and to also create a culture of consent. Right. Because if we're not able to talk about the things we don't like, how are we going to be able to talk about the things that we do like yeah. or do want or do want to have in our lives? Yeah. And so that to me is just an essential part of, of accountability in the way that I want to move in the world. But it's also very, um, it's isolating because a lot of people don't like conflict at all. At all. And, and, you know, conflict, discomfort, those are sites for unlearning yeah. and for producing new knowledge. Yeah. And so I really revel in that chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, it's the cognitive, to me, it's the cognitive dissonance where the issue is, right? Like that's, we are so comfortable and so willing to like live in delusion that we need, we have to have conflict in order to get free. Because that's the only thing that's going to make us uncomfortable enough to push past the delusions that we hang on to about sex, Mm -hmm. about race, about, you know, what's normal in the world and all of these things. And so it's so funny because sometimes I'm with myself. I'm telling you, like, I'm your intellectual baby in a lot of ways because I'm like, I didn't used to be this confrontational until I got here. And I was like, oh, is this what we doing? Okay. Like, and I remember when the switch turned off in my own head where I was like, you know what? There's no way I can show up. I'll say to sex ed, there's no way I can show up to this field without people seeing me as a conflict. So I might as well show all the way the fuck up. And that changed Mm -hmm. everything. But what I realized is there's nothing wrong with conflict unless you make it wrong. Right. Right. And, and, and I, and some of the things I think about with this too, like I think about how intention, so I'm going to say something. I'm, I'm going to try to make sure I'm clear in a way so I can be clear that I'm not knocking the the rule, the idea of a, intention being more important than in, or being less important than impact. I think where that backfires is that people get so much on eggshells because they're so concerned about impact. And I think it goes the opposite way. So marginalized folks get so eggshelly about where it's like, that did not mean what you think it meant. The intention Mm -hmm. versus impact doesn't mean I'm not going to hurt your feelings sometimes, or I'm not going to say something where you're like, ah, like what it means is that it is an opportunity for me to be held accountable and for me to step up. Like, and I think people are so, yeah, that's what I want to say. Even folks with privilege, Mm -hmm. I think they are so like, so concerned, so sad and so like fearful of impact that they don't like their intentions completely go false where they're not Mm -hmm. genuine. And then they're still causing impact issues because they're not moving with intention. They're they're or their intention is so focused on their own selves versus how can I be of support? How can I be of service? The intention is how can I not hurt your feelings? Which that's not the point. Right. Right. Like our feelings are going to be what they are regardless. It doesn't make you a bad person because someone was hurt because you said right. something. It was the wrong whatever. Um, you know, you know, it's the changed behavior that people want. People want that harm to stop. That's the part. And so if you don't learn from it, that's the part where that's the problem. Right. And I think, um, you know, for me, I try to remind people that like as human beings, we can witness harm, we can experience harm, and we can cause harm. Yeah. Because how complicated we are as human beings. We are not cyborgs yet. We're not robots yet. We're not omniscient. We don't know all exactly. the rules. We don't know everything. And that's okay. We shouldn't know everything. Right. You know, like, so much more room to learn. And, you know, those are the places where, for me... I, I, I love telling people I got a six year old in my life who's one of my mentors right now, you know, like, and those are the ways that I'm choosing to like show up <laughs> and find other mentors for me, because listen, it's not going to be these 50 something year olds in our field who want to pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. They too are trifling mm-hmm. and are refusing to grow and evolve. And that's the difference. Like, cause the reality is that we're all trifling, but it's a difference when you're trifling, exactly. you know, you're trifling and you're actually trying to work through it and you're tri- unapologetically mm-hmm. trifling. And you're actually looking to the younger generation to get mm-hmm. accolades and kudos for shit you haven't actually done right. and you don't actually deserve. <laughs> right. That's not how it works. Like that's also not 
collaboration. Right. And also it's not sustainable. Right? Like at the end of the day, you know, I'm also all about sustainability. What can we do that will create change that's long lasting yes. and also allow for change to evolve throughout the process. Yes. And that requires succession planning. That yes, requires getting out of the way. That requires leaving a job or a position. And I've done that multiple times not always in the most accountable way, but also in the way that was most accountable to me and my spirit and what I needed. And really that's, that's the first person. Like, so as a Leo, I'm going to tell y'all, like, (laughs) only you can take care of yourself. And, you know, it's also a gift that you offer to the people who love you when you take care of yourself. It helps that relationship evolve. And it also offers you the opportunity to be vulnerable and find that strength and the vulnerability and ask for help. Because when I asked for help and you showed up, like that was a gift I was able to give you and that you were able to give me. So it it helped, you know, maintain our reciprocal relationship that oftentimes... Listen, a lot of Black femmes don't have relationships that are rooted in reciprocity. We have relationships that are rooted in extraction. Mm. And that is not sustainable. Yeah. And we can probably think of several people in our lives who had those time, those kinds of relationships. Yeah. Um, and they would tell us they learned that a little too late. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's really important um, for me to receive accountability, to receive a call out, a call in as a radical form of love. Yeah. Because that's the choice that I make to receive it in that way. And it's not a common response. And I think it really fucks a lot of white people up. Because they don't know what to do with someone who's like, thank you for saying that bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Around this legislation or whatever it is. Um, And it also is a modeling of what's possible in our communities that we don't see enough of. And I definitely am starting to think about you know, what are the ways that, you know, I want people to feel seen and heard when they're in a space with me. And my priority, look, I'm a black femme supremacist. (laughs) That was, I remember that from our first conversation, you saying that to me. And I was like, "Er, wait a minute. I got to sit with this for a minute because I don't know that I've ever thought about it. (laughs) And like, and that changes your perspective and your lens when you center the, you know, people in the community that you're intentionally building relationships with. Yeah. And that's something that I think a lot of white and lighter skinned people do not understand. You know, and oftentimes when I teach them, like, but Bianca, how can I reach black community? How can I reach Asian Americans and blah blah? And I'm like, well, do you know where they are? Do you know where they work? Do you know where they eat? Right. Do you know where they're? Have you asked yourself why are you trying to reach them? Right. Do you know that they do want they you reaching them? you, reaching them? Do you know, are you certain that they want you in their neighborhoods? Right. And also, like, let's be real. A lot of white people in our field think it's a compliment to invite you or me or other black people to teach something at their organization. They're seriously underpaid what we're worth. And I'm always like, you ain't never come to anything I ever did. Right. Why do you think I should leave my community and my space rooted in liberation and collective access right? Uh, to go to your rinky-dink, whatever it is, right. and be exposed to a variety of white supremacist thinking that is just going to be a container for and maintaining And not just exposed, violence. inundated, like soaked, pushed, forced, head down into the toilet of your, of your policies and practices and ways of thinking and ways of being. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so... I'm going to rephrase my next question a little bit differently, thinking, just thinking positionality. And I love 
the I love how you call on folks and I I do this with my classes too to think about their identity from a politicized perspective. So from a politicized perspective, I'm gonna shift gears and have you talk a little bit about intersectionality, which I know you have an amazing course. Um, I had the chance to see what you did with um, the group in, I think it was Massachusetts, somewhere up there mm-hmm. with the, with the, mm-hmm. with the middle, with the, with the white folks. New England. <laughs> right. New England. Right. Somewhere up there with the white folks. But it was amazing to me. Um, tell me what you feel like our field, folks in our field get wrong when it comes to teaching about intersectionality and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think people get wrong a lot of things. The first thing is that it's only about multiple identities, and it's not. Intersectionality is a a theory of power and oppression. Mm -hmm. And understanding that we all are complicated and have layered identities and experiences is just the beginning. That's like the introductory sentence, y'all. Like, that's not the whole thing. (laughs) It's a whole theoretical concept that follows after that. Um, So people then just stop there. People then... um, you know, don't engage with power. They don't engage with systems. They also think that the systems are only outside of us. They're over there, Mm -hmm. like the healthcare system, the education system. And they don't ever realize that like the systems in our bodies are also systems that we need to figure out. And so I know that there's going to be a question about this coming up, but like as someone who has a compromised immune system Mm -hmm. and therefore is considered and is disabled, my relationship with my immune system and other people in the world really shifted when the pandemic hit. And you were the last person that I ever saw you know, right. before yep. the pandemic. You came for a visit and you know, I remember it like it was yesterday um, because that's when we started hearing stories coming from parts of Asia um, here in California. And you know, it, it, my, my relationship with my immune system is a conversation that we don't always have when it comes to intersectionality yeah. or the relationships that we have with our digestive systems and the ways that a lot of queer and trans young people oftentimes report having gastrointestinal problems. And that's deeply rooted to the stressors, the trauma yeah. of not being accepted or affirmed or having people find to find support around. Um, and that that continues for a lot of adults. Mm-hmm. You know, we now call it something like a gluten allergy or irritable bowel syndrome or whatever it is, but it also is the way that our body is somatically and viscerally responding to other things too. Absolutely. Um, So I think people forget that there's systems in our bodies that we also need to figure out and talk about. And then look, people mess up the language all the time, Tracy. I got a whole slide in my class where I'm like, let's just talk about grammar, y'all. Let's just talk about grammar. You know, intersectionality is a noun. It's, it's, It's... capitalized right you know right and a lot of people will misuse the language and say the intersectionality of this right no <laughs> you, you want to look at this thing through an intersectional lens right so the adjective of intersection you know right. how do you how do you take intersectionality the noun and turn it into an adjective well that's how you do it intersectional lens or framework um and those are the pieces that really burn my biscuits to be quite honest and then also people thinking that they can say oh the intersection of bdsm and kink and healing and think that the term intersection means anything about intersectionality. No, homies, that is a noun in its own right, right. that existed for forever. Right. I think finally, people don't recognize that Kimberly Crenshaw is not the only citation for intersectionality, mm. that there are plenty of Black and Indigenous people in the Americas who have done intersectional work, but weren't calling it that. There are plenty of examples of that throughout history. And it's also really important to understand that Kimberly Crenshaw came from a legal perspective. And 
I, look, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a legal perspective necessarily. I have a social science one, a humanities one. Yeah. And there was conversations happening in the humanities and social sciences yeah. at the same time. So, you know, Patricia Hill Collins calls it the matrix of domination yeah. in black feminist thought. You know, so here are the ways that how can we put Crenshaw and Collins in conversation in their early work and also acknowledge that this is work that has been done by black women, by indigenous women for centuries. Yeah. And then it's new. It's just a new language. Yeah. Um, yeah those are some of the things. I yeah. I appreciate you raising that point. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a person that's like cite black women. So I've always been big on being like, okay, but Kimberly, okay. But, but Patricia, but I do appreciate what you're saying because I think, I think about this a lot too. When I think of now just a lot of the debates that I feel like are also, they've had to be reactive to white supremacy the debates around intellectual property and this idea of like, you've got to put a name on something because I think what often happens is younger scholars of color come out with something and they have to put their name, put a name on it and claim to it. So white supremacy doesn't take it, even though when you really look at it, what they came up with is a new either. And it's kind of like, they just happen to be the one talking about it at this time. So it's like this real weird, ugly kind of thing where it's like, I sit it, but you know, my Libra of self allows me to sit in both sides, to sit in both camps, to be like, that ain't new, but I get why you put your label on it. I get it. Right. <laughs> so. right, right. Yeah, I'm all about citation too. I, you know, I believe citation is such a beautiful way to invite people in to their own yeah. learning, to show up for learning. Yeah. And yeah. You know, citation is just, um, I stopped citing white people. Let me just say that out front. I stopped citing white Look. people. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going to talk about Daniel Patrick Moynihan and the case of the Negro family. I'm going to cite these other three black women who have already debunked all this shit. Right. And if you want to go and read the original papers, that's on you. You can find it out through these three black women. Right. Um, right, right, right. And that, to me, it's also a form of love. And it's a form of editing. That's also a form of love. Yeah. Because look, white people will not cite us. They will take our work. Yeah. And they will use our, our work and never fight us. And that's it. another, what, what I love to, like, I believe, when you, I think of what you said about accessibility, I am the same way. And I, like, at the same time, I recognize that the Academy is elitist bullshit. I also recognize that the Academy doesn't belong to white people. So I'm actively like, how can we, caught like do take these tools and use it for regular folks too so i'm big on like uh you know citing for example citing kashawn thompson as the originator of black girl magic i'm down for citing you know um just citing whoever right like who is outside mm -hmm. of the academy and recognizing this is their intellectual labor you know hot girl summer uh giving megan her flowers mm -hmm. and like recognizing like knowledge creation is in our communities all the time. And the only difference is that a lot of us aren't privy to the tools and the, and the machinations of citing things, but we still have the right. And because we have the skill and in many ways, in many cases, I feel like we're the newer, like we're creating the shit, the new shit anyway. Like y'all not doing nothing but like, I'm like, y'all really just, uh, what's the word? Incest, it's incest, intellectual incest. Y'all just pulling off y'all shit. We the ones with the new, <laughs> we the ones with the new, like with the, um, to this day, the 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 article that came out about youth in Baltimore using using yo as a gender neutral pronoun, I'm like, that's the shit. That's that shit. Nobody's gonna get them that credit, but that's the credit that where it needs to go. You know, while y'all talking yeah. about they, they on some yo, they on the next level shit, yeah. right? So, so that's why I'm always like, let's let's cite. But I also I also acknowledge I I hear what you're saying about the historical realities of just all these folks that have been. And I recognize to me that sometimes naming and claiming helps 
rectify that history. Because if we don't put our name on it, somebody else will. And it's like, no, like, hopefully, I don't know Kimberly Crenshaw, but I would hope that she's aware that she stands on shoulders, right? And she recognizes that, yes, my name is on this, but it's not just mine. Like, you know, like my theory, I'm very clear that I pulled from, you know, uh, Joy DeGruy Leary. I'm clear that I pulled on E. Patrick Johnson. Matter of fact, I I emailed him and was like, yo, can I get you to write an endorsement for my book? You know, I'm like, I'm very clear. I wasn't the first person who talked about this. Even racialized sexuality, that goes to Abdul Muhammad. My, and I, maybe this is my being my bonnet, I think our field doesn't do enough. Well, I think academics, period, don't do enough to figure out, am I the first person who said this? Am I the first person who used this term? Or do I just say something quick on my IG live and I'm like, I made that up. When it's like, did you? If you did your work, if you did your research, you would see that maybe you weren't. Um, And so I see, again, that's a messy response to what you said, but I feel like it's, you know, it's recognizing I see all the sides. Yeah, you know, and I think we're part of that generation that is really doing a different type of justice work where, you know, I think a lot about my homie Moya Bailey. Yes. Who coined the term Sage Noir. That is the kind of citation and attribution that a person should have when they create something new, right? And and that, you know, we've seen that manifest and shift and change. And Moya has steadily remained the citation that people offer that to. Even after, you know, she left the crunk feminist, like it stayed with her and it wasn't appropriated from her. And I think those are really, really important um, reminders that it is possible. And she has a book coming out titled uh, Massage Noir. And that is, you know, that to me is the beauty of what's possible. And um, and that citation really, it is a form of radical love because for us to sit here and be like, look, Kambahi River Collective, yes. Harriet Tubman, who were those Quaker people that helped Harriet Tubman, you know, get all those people out. You know, the fact that we don't know those individuals' names, yes. that to me is a form of violence yeah. that white supremacy wants to erase. Yes. white people know those people's names. Yes. Even something like I think of um, Carter G. Woodson. Because before, mm-hmm. before, and and I appreciate the conversation you and I had that helped me think about decolonization with regard to land. But even before mm-hmm. that, he was the first person I ever read who talked about mental colonization and was like talking about how that affects them. And I was so, so now to have the whole piece around decolonization and this whole thing of decolonizing sexuality, it's like, okay, so what are we talking, like, what, what's the basis? What are y'all really, really, do you know what you are really, really talking about? Somebody invited mm-hmm. me to come on a conversation and I did it, but then I was like, I honestly, I don't know that I ever think about it. Like somebody asked, well, what do you do to decolonize? And I'm like, bitch, I live. I don't know. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> I show up. That's what the fuck I do, right? Like, I be myself. I, I, I was born decolonized because I wasn't allowed to be part of the colony. So, you know, so it, it's it's all really fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 So... I, so tell me, you 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 were right. We're going to get into this topic. Tell me now, especially uh, with with what you did with Crip Camp and things like that. Tell me how you transitioned from the works that you started with into getting into disability justice and how that shows up in your work today. Yeah. So it really is about intentional relationships. And you know, one of my homegirls, Stacy Park Milburn, mm-hmm. we have known each other since. 2007 maybe I can't even remember maybe earlier um she is a Korean um American 
who grew up in North Carolina and we met when I was living in New York City and she's disabled. She has um, particular disability and we just became homegirls online. You know, we talked a lot about sexuality, being racialized. We talked about challenges in our lives. And that was the first relationship that I intentionally built with a a physically disabled person that I knew was physically disabled. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother also was the one person at her job in the 80s that took my sister and I to visit her dying boss, who was a gay man dying of AIDS complications. Mm -hmm. And I remember her bringing us into his room and being like, you can touch his hand, and him just crying. And he's like, thank you so much for bringing the kids. And I didn't realize like what that meant for him Mm -hmm. in the moment of people just being afraid to bring him food. but the fact that my mother was like, fuck this shit. My children are going to see you. They know you. They're going to say goodbye. And so I had, you know, there were radical things that my parents did. They weren't rude in a race, but um, they were rude in a race and community in a particular way. And um, so, you know, being, having Stacy in my life really challenged me to push and think about accessibility in a different way. And so um, she is one of the six originators of a disability justice framework that um, was created with several other people, all who are queer, trans, people of color primarily, um, who also introduced this framework to the public. And so being able to have a relationship with her that was sustainable um, and long lasting. When I moved to California, she had already moved here as well and was living in the Bay Area. And so she was like one of two friends that I had here Mm. when I moved here. Mm -hmm. And so we maintained that friendship and she unfortunately died in May of last year, Mm -hmm. which was devastating. And prior to her death, she received the position of what they call impact producer for the film Crip Camp. Mm -hmm. And impact producers is a a Hollywood title. It basically is people who hold and manage all of the moving parts around marketing, but also the impact that the film can have Mm. in the community that they target. And so as I say this, you can probably think about all the movies that don't have an impact campaign um, or or impact team um, because they haven't been elevated in the same way. They weren't created for that purpose. (laughs) Exactly. And so Stacey Park-Milburn and Andrea Levant were both hired as the impact producers. Andrea is a Black uh, disabled woman. And she was also a friend that I had known for about a year and a half when we had like a budding friendship Mm -hmm. and and colleagueship. And... um, you know, I mean, it was when you were here that Stacy was like, can you get on the call real quick? And I was like, it's nine o'clock, yo. Right. And, I, you know, I forgot. I think I left that. I think I left your visit to have the call with her and then came back. And then I think you left. Yeah, no, I remember that. Back. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And so she basically, her and Andrea got on the line and they were like, we just got this job and we want to write a curriculum rooted in disability justice. And, um, yo, wait, okay. And- wait, 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 wait. I'm having a, my, my <laughs> mind is melting. Cause I just kind of said, was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. But it's only in this moment that I realized that's what that call was for. Oh my gosh. Cause I remember you were like, yeah, I got this thing with Netflix and I was like, okay, bitch, you doing Netflix. Okay. You know, do it. But oh my gosh, to see that that's what that was for. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and and it is amazing because it was rooted in our friendship. Trace, um, Stacey and Andrea, they trusted me. They knew the work that I did. They had seen the work that I did. And they also brought in my homegirl, Aisha Turman. Yes. Who's a black woman that lives in the community. Shout out to the Black Girl Project. project. (laughs) 
And so both of us were on the call and bless Aisha's heart. It was midnight in Mm -hmm. New York City time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were like, will y'all do it? Because they have hired, they being the people before us, Mm -hmm. um, hired an education team. They didn't tell us who it was, but they were like, it's the same level as like Scholastic. Very high, you know, paying, very well known. And we asked them some basic questions like, what do you think ableism is? And what do you think some challenges are for disabled youth? And they didn't have any answers. They were like, hard. It's hard for them. Right. You know, <laughs> they were like, oh, you can't write this curriculum. At all. So it was really my relationships with them and me showing up for our relationship and also maybe a little bit of them pimping out our relationships <laughs> to be like, we got to get you on a call right now. And can you write the scope of work yeah. in the next six hours? And, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. I also didn't know what was possible. And so, you know, it was from that relationship that I also was able to build other relationships with more disabled people. And um, so when I got my diagnosis of my disability five years ago, and it happened right when my mom died, and um, and I didn't know what was happening, but I, I had inherited her immune system mm. and the challenges that show up with it. And I got the diagnosis and it wasn't devastating because I had so many disabled people in my life who were living full, amazing, beautiful lives. Right, yeah. And um, the shame that I think happens for a lot of non-disabled people who then acquire a disability later on, that shame didn't always exist for me. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to stop the negative self-talk and say things to myself like, this is a, a gift that your mother offers. Um, I'm not a, a religious person, but spiritually I can say I am created in a divine yeah. light. And I mirror what my ancestors experienced and looked like. So that was what really helped me with a compromised immune system where I wasn't going to get better quickly. I'm never going to be healthy again in my life. And and the complicated relationship with like the medical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So those are pieces that really helped me shape the curricula that I do. Being exposed early on to some of the thoughts of what does a disability justice model look like? Mm-hmm. What are the principles of disability justice? And it really is such a beautiful and life-saving framework that welcomes us all in, that says we are all whole, none of us are broken, yeah. that recognizes interdependence as a gift and as a requirement to be a human being on the planet, yeah. and really encourages us to dream of a world where everybody has their needs met. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. And that's why I still got growing to do. I cannot imagine it. But I, I love the notion. I love the notion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so my next question is one of my regular questions, but I'm going to shift it again. Um, thinking about practitioners, like, and especially folks that work in uh, or desire to work in Black communities. For the person who's like, Bianca, you're amazing. I love everything you said. Um, I have no idea how to begin in doing this work. What would be some kind of initial suggestions, thoughts, things that you give for them to to begin to do? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, get online. <laughs> Make sure that you have access to online communities because that's where a lot of us are at and that's where a lot of us are thriving. I would also welcome people to come to Black Sweat. Tracy's going to come and speak in Actual a few months. Actual um, yes, Because Black Sweat was created um, really for non-Black people to have an opportunity to meet us, to learn from us, to build with us, to um, 
to then have our contact information to then reach out and be like, hey, can I put you on my referral list? Mm-hmm. Or hey, can I do like five hours of supervision and consulting work with you where you help me figure out blah? You know, those are all pieces that I think um, were really intentional for me when I created Black Sweat. And, you know, using the language of a Prince song where he's like, you know, working up a Black Sweat. Right. But also I'll have you screaming like a white lady. And I kind of think, <laughs> so these are the things that I love about that song. Right. Um, <laughs> But also like there's just the it's also a professional development opportunity. Yeah. Right. Because a lot of people don't know where to start. And a lot of people are scared about building relationships. Mm-hmm. Like, period. That's why we have so many apps, right? Because people are so wanting connection. Right. And you know, what are the ways that we can make that connection a little bit more easier um, for people to access? And yeah, it comes with a $25 cost because yes, I'm going to give you one continuing education unit. Yes. And also you get to hear this brilliant person speak about their research, their experiences, share with you honestly what's going on. And you get to see the diversity within our communities. Right. And you begin to understand that like not everybody has the same approach, not everybody has the same message because not all black people are the same. Right. And you know, it's not an endorsement necessarily. It is, but it isn't for me because I don't want to get in anybody's way of presenting their information Mm -hmm. in the ways that they want to present it. And is it the way that I would present stuff? Probably not, but it's not my work. Right. So really this is also for me, an example of strategically using the power that I have as a lighter skinned person who is a continuing education provider mm-hmm. who has this connection in a very white organization that's trying to create a little bit of change mm-hmm. that is coming slowly but surely. But that there are opportunities like this all around. And those are things that I think are important for people to know is that I created Black Sweat not just for Black people. I mean, we show up for each other, right. period. Right. But it was also for everybody to be welcomed into the space and to learn. And that, I think, is an important opportunity for people to really humble themselves and say, let me see how a community that I'm not a part of does it. Yeah. Because I've been trained in a very white supremacist way that dehumanizes everybody right. that sees me as like the expert. And so what do I have to learn from these people? Right. You have a lot to learn actually. Right. <laughs> like how to properly say our name. How about there. that? Let's start there. Um, <laughs> right. And you know, and learning about like how to how to how to contact us for stuff. Um, And this is also for me creating a secondary market for black sex professionals Mm -hmm. where I have a lot of people who are already established coming to talk and also people who are newly coming into the field and are like shocked and honored that I invited them to present. I'm like, you got something important to say. And these mofos need to hear it. And And it goes back to black thought leadership, right? And this whole idea of like, we're the ones who are having new thoughts, but because we're treated as if we're just pawns for white organizations. So we hire you to be the frontline person to make the all the folks of color feel good. We don't think about the fact that you actually have unique things to offer. And so, yeah, like it is amazing when somebody asks you because it's like, oh shit, y'all, y'all listening now. Oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, and it's like, it's four Sundays a month, right? Yes. More or less. And it's, you know, and we're going to do it for like, I don't know, it's been like, it's going to end in July because I need a break. Um, oh, you a good But one. it's starting in October, October to July. That's, I don't know, let's just say it's 10. That's 40 people. That is 40 more black sex professionals that people did not know yes. before. And, and 40 and more reasons you can't say, we don't know anybody. 
exactly. Yeah. And it's just like you can't keep saying the same three people's names. Right. It, it, it's not okay anymore. Right. And and I demonstrate that too, where I'm like, Tracy Gilbert, you want to read somebody's work who understands the intersectional analysis and is working with black people? Go look at Tracy Gilbert's dissertation and get on the short list for pre-ordering her book. Right. Those are the, the ways that like I want to demonstrate citation. I don't always have to cite. Everybody knows Patricia Hill Collins. Great. Right. I, I, a lot of people know Bell Hooks. I want to cite other people who are talking about love in a different way yes. too. Um, and I think it's also oh, yeah. important, and this is uh, just me, I, I think it's important in our profession to cite black sexologists because that's the thing that also pisses me off that people forget that not forget, but they ignore us and then try to pull in somebody from another discipline as if they are more able to speak to this topic than we are. And, and just don't get me wrong. I think when we're developing new thoughts, we have to draw from those places, but it should never be that a person, especially not a, a non-black person is pulling from outside of our field before at least first consulting the folks who are here. And, and right. you know, I like I've, it's been very humbling in these two years that I've been more kind of outside of the academy working for people to talk about things and to mention people that I'm like, mm. <laughs> you you act like I don't know that person or to mention people who would then mention me and to be like, so, so you, okay, I'll just wait. I'll wait. You, you have this right. question about this thing and you want me to consult somebody who would tell you to tell to, to, to reach out to me, but okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's fine. We yeah. can do that. We can do that. Yeah. But yeah, that to me is so important because we're here. We are here. And yeah, and we've been here, and 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 it's also um, it's so powerful when someone believes in you, and when someone's yes. like, "Here's the microphone, you get it for an hour, and we're also gonna pay you." Yes, and that's how it's gonna work. So tell all your friends, even if they can't show up, to buy a ticket. Yes, um, and that's something that you know it's exercising our marketing skills, but it's also telling our community, "Hey, show up for me." Yes, because this is how I can get paid. This is how I'm dipping my toe yep. in this work. Yep. Um, and that's one another thing I appreciate about you where you're like, I could take all of this money and just give you 40 lectures because I'm just that dope. But you know, you, you and I, I feel like we have symmetry in in our thinking about that. Um, I was just thinking of a speech that not a speech, but like a Facebook rant that I did years before back when I was like, I'm willing to yell at y'all for free. Um, I don't do that anymore. (laughs) But where I was talking about, um, Viola Davis, like the first time she won an Emmy or something like that. And it was like, she got put on by Shonda Rhimes. Like Shonda saw Mm -hmm. her in ways that nobody else saw her and was like, I got a role just for you. And it's like, how many of us, especially among the folks of color, how many of us are Violas and how many of us are Shondas? And it's like, you know your role and recognize that sometimes you may be getting an opportunity, but it's not for you. And being, and, and having enough faith to say, you know what? This is not my jam, but let me tell you who you can go to and being mm-hmm. willing to pass it on. I think that is so, so important and and, and something mm-hmm. that has to, to me, it represents the collective spirit of, of the marginalized. I think that's just how we've been able to survive and that's how we're going to continue to thrive if we keep that and not take on the white supremacist mentality of if I have it, you can't. And if you get it, I can't have it. It's like, no, right. we can all win. We can all eat. Yeah, that scarcity model. Yes. It's just, it's what (laughs) like that's not how it works there's room for all of us and honestly it's also about like 
you know, um, creating your own table. Like, I don't want to be at the table with the same people at all. all the time. It's whack. Eating all that bland food. It's whack. I want to be at the table with people <laughs> where we got music going on. Like, <laughs> I love the idea of, of gumbo yaya, right? Where there's so many different conversations going on. Yes. But the same conversation going on. Yes. Um, that's what I thrive from. And I'll say duress from it. But like, that's, that's a form of communication that I really appreciate. And, um, and, and for me, I'm like, let's, you know, let's create a table together. Let's create the chairs that we need. Let's, you know, what are the things that we need to do to elongate this table? Yes. Because what we're not going to do is push people aside to let you slide in. Like right. that's how they do it in the right way. And what we're going to do instead is be like, what kind of chair do you need? Where you want to sit? Right. Who you want to be next to? You know what? How can right. we scoot up? We're gonna share um, this chair I, together. We can do it. Exactly. Absolutely. You want to be on the bench? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. 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 Um. So I'm gonna get to my rapid fire questions in a second, but I want to ask you to think through and share with the people what you feel like, um, as someone sitting with your various identities and just your skill set and all of that, where you feel what you feel like your significance, role, or impact is right now to the field of human sexuality? Yeah, so I feel like oh, there's so many things. To pick one would be to, um, you know, reimagine and, and unlearn how we dehumanize each other. And so really it's humanization work. Mm-hmm. And I choose to start that work um, with chattel slavery and the way that indigenous people have been treated in this country specifically. And yeah, that's my choice. And some people, a lot of white people don't understand, like, why are we talking about chattel slavery? Why are you talking about how indigenous people are treated? Well, because this is how we learn to dehumanize each other. And if you don't understand how that's important to your work as a sex therapist, you're not ready to be a sex therapist, right? Like if you're questioning, why are we even watching this? You need to- Just the fact that you can't even get your mind to imagine why we might be talking about this. Right, exactly. That's- that's that's a big thing. Right. And there's plenty of white people that are still coming into the field, plenty of Latinos, plenty of Asian people, non-black people that still will ask this question, why are we starting here? Aren't we beyond this? Well, you're not talking enough about this community. You know what? Because this is how y'all learned how to treat each other poorly right. was through the ways that these individuals were treated. Right. <laughs> so let's start at the root of the issue and the problem. Because y'all aren't ready to talk about colonization and conquest and exploration, but that's really what those I'm are the main to. people too. It's like you can't talk about slavery, but you want to talk about decolonizing. How? Like, what does that word mean to you then? How are you using? It? <laughs> I want to understand. <laughs> Baby steps, grasshopper. Baby steps. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I feel like my answer would have been different. Like ten years ago, would have been like equity and belonging, and 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 I feel like those are all a part of humanizing um humanizing each other right and i'm not i don't want to say this i don't center white people and i don't center whiteness yeah and that doesn't mean that i dehumanize white people there's a difference and a lot of people don't understand it and i still have like non-black people i have latinos they're the the most offensive ones who were like you know we just keep talking about black people and you're not talking about more multicultural black oh because you think black people aren't latino I see, I see you, mm-hmm. and we're not catering to you. You know, and it's also this idea that non-black people are really—they don't know what to do when they see black people loving each other. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what to do with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, they're shocked. They're—they're they're appalled sometimes. They're scared. And other times, they call the police. And other times, I mean, 
And when we really show up for each other, they're in shock. Yeah. And they have no idea what to do because it doesn't look like the way that they show up for each other. Yeah. Because they are out for blood when it comes to each other. Um, and that's just not how it is with, with the rest of us yeah. all the time. I mean, and that's not all black people. Let's be real. There's some trifling black people. Like, whatever. Of course. And You, know, you can't leave white supremacy them. unscathed. Like, no, you just none of us. <laughs> Um, but you know, those people have community and I don't need to put their, their name in my mouth to like disrespect them or dehumanize them. I'm gonna leave them alone because I want them to do that to me. So it's reciprocal to not fuck with each other. And that's okay. And I think a lot of people believe that we all got to be friends. No, we don't. We do not need to be friends. You and I are homies, but that's because we, we chose that for each other. It was a mutual decision. There's other people who want to be my friends, but I'm like, nah, I'm I'm at my friend limit. Um, but also, I have high expectations for my homies. You know, like not just anybody can be my homie. Like, are you serious? I need people who are willing to like really show up in ways that people are not wanting to. And what I also um, hear in what yeah. you're saying, and and not to completely cut you off, but what I hear in what you're saying too is that we don't have to be friends for you to do right by people. And I think that's a, mm-hmm. that's something too that goes back to what you said about humanization. I think um, we have this, I don't know if it's a Western thing or white supremacist thing or what, where it's like, I only do right by people that I like. I only do right by people mm-hmm. who are, uh, that I perceive to be good. And it's like, from an like ethical, like it should not matter. People should have their, whether you like them or not, you should be able to do right by them. Nobody's saying you got to be your friends. Nobody's saying y'all got to go, you know, go on vacation together or whatever. But it doesn't have to be so that, oh, I don't fuck with you. So I want you to have harm. Nah, like it doesn't have to be that. And so I I think that's also important distinction to make as well. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. um so i want to say I, I will say for the record for listeners now because i'm i i wasn't sure where this conversation was gonna go i just knew i wanted you here and i wanted you part of the conversation but i want to go on record as saying that i think this is probably the first and maybe only episode that i can honestly say that okay white people this is kind of for you because <laughs> like, I know they're, that y'all are listening. <laughs> Usually my show is just, you know, just for regular degular black folks. And, and you know, I, I know there's a lot of black sex educators who were like, yes, I got my life off this episode too. But I'm going to say that this is the one where I'm like, okay, white people, y'all can listen. Listen, if you, if you mm-hmm. want to cite one, if you want to continue to listen and study and take notes, this is the one to do it. So don't mm-hmm. say I never gave y'all nothing and don't ask me for nothing later. <laughs> Here y'all go. Yeah. Um, but we're going to go mm-hmm. ahead and wrap it up and give the rapper fire questions because I, mm-hmm. I always want to hear what everyone has to say and you are no exception. So um, five sentence stems, just give me the first thing that's on your mind, okay? Okay, perfect. All right. I'm ready. So first one, ooh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm knocking my mic over. Okay. <laughs> first sentence stem, sexiness is? Confidence and self-awareness yes that's it that's it um the sexiest thing about blackness and or black people is Mm, the way that our skin shows up in the sunshine and the moonlight yes pelo negro (laughs) love it yes um my go-to for feeling sexy is 
a Prince song. Yeah, come on. What's your favorite? What's your favorite? You know, we got to go in now. Oh my gosh, there's so many. I mean, yeah, there's so many. I love Black Sweat right now. Yes. Um, I also love, like, just the silliness of, like, Starfish and Coffee. You know, there's just, I mean, yes. <laughs> the most beautiful girl in the world. Oh, like, yeah. I see that for myself. And, like, self-adoration. You know, there's, yeah. There's, yeah. I feel like there's a Prince song for everything. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. That's true. My, the first one that popped in my head was Crazy You. I love that mm. one, the, mm-hmm. the earlier yes. ones, and and um, I yes. want to be a love. See, look, we can do a whole episode yeah. just about Prince, uh, the sex exactly. of Prince. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, sexual freedom for Black folk is achieved when? Mm. When we heal from the shame that brought us here, unfortunately, in many ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Can't disagree with that. Okay, last one. When I'm done being on this podcast, I will. Uh, drink some water and eat some apple crumble. Ooh, fun. <laughs> yes. It's late here, so I'm done with my, my sugar intake, but that sounds yummy. <laughs> Bianca, thank you so much for being here, my love. I'm so happy to have had this conversation with you. I'm so happy that you gave me your time. I know that it is precious and you have a billion other people asking for your attention, so I just appreciate you giving me your attention. Will you please let the folks know where they can find you on the interwebs if they, you know, when they get their coin together to give you your props as you need them. Absolutely. It's been an honor talking with you and recording it for the archive um, yes. that we are building and that you're building. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm accessible on purpose. So people can find me on Instagram as Lati Negra Sexologist. Um, it's a long word. You can also find Tracy and she's following me. I'm also on Twitter as Latino Sexuality. Um, both of my accounts are public, so you can just follow me and read my stuff whenever. Um, if you want the Crip Camp curriculum, you go to cripcamp.com backslash curriculum. It's in English and Spanish. And um, yeah, all of those places also have my email address. My first and last name.com is where you can learn a little bit more about me and the work that I do professionally. And if you want to learn more about my trainings, the SARS, the classes that I'm doing, and if you want to get Annie Up certified, because I have a certification program now, learning um, or helping people understand justice frameworks and how to incorporate them into our work, that would be antiuppd.com. Yes, I love that. Love that. And and as much of that as possible, I'll put in the show notes. I'm like, I try to cite all the things that I discussed. I'm like, this is going to be the biggest reference page. <laughs> we mentioned so many things, but it's beautiful. Um, but yeah, that's our show, y'all. I hope you've had a great listen. I wish you all the best. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to TSOB with Dr. G, produced by Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert of Tembi and I. To keep up with all things TSOB, Follow us on social media at TSOB The Podcast, which you can find on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For past episodes of the show, visit TSOBpodcast.com or subscribe to the show either on YouTube or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now, don't forget that you've got homework for this episode. To find the downloadable worksheet for this or any other episode of the show, head on over again to tsobpodcast.com where you'll find it and any other important information from the show notes. And finally, do you have any questions or thoughts to share? 
Sound off by email at mailbox at tsobpodcast.com. Again, this was TSOB, the sex ed of black folk. Thank you for listening. Talk again soon.